I'm Jonathan Aberman. Coming up on today's show... I think as a sports owner, you do have a responsibility to your community as a, a business leader, as a part of the fabric here. Maybe think about what your responsibility is and be a part of the solution to helping revitalize DC. Welcome to What's Working in Washington on Federal News Network and streaming as a podcast. If you're a sports fan in this region, or maybe if you're just an observer, you know that one team, two teams are about to move across the river, and another larger football franchise may be doing the same. It raises issues, significant issues for how we're going to allocate spending in the region, but also, let's face it, what do owners think about the fans who pay for the product? Today, we're joined by Matt Conley, an independent journalist who wrote in The Atlantic about these issues. It was a very compelling piece, and I've asked him to join us on the show. Give a listen. Well, Matt, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. So give us a little bit of a window into your life. How did you come to write this column, and you know, what do you do here in town? I have the fortune or misfortune of having had Washington Wizards season tickets for 10 years now. This was my me and my friends who have tickets with me. It was our 10-year anniversary this year. I used to be a local reporter. Um, I covered lots of issues around the region. Um, I was in a magazine editor. I left the journalism world. I work in labor now. But I'll occasionally write something when something piques my interest or when someone begs me enough. And when this stadium move got announced, you know, a lot of my old friends and colleagues were texting me because I'm the first one that came to mind of like, oh, what do you think about this? You know, can you believe what's going on? And thanks to The Atlantic, they had me actually write about it. And, you know, I was able to put in a little more a little more legwork, you know, back to my journalism days than just write out the completely heartfelt rant that I probably could have just written in about an hour. I spend my day job, I'm a venture capitalist, and so what I do uh, a lot of the day is I find people who want to start businesses. And what I find is that the most successful entrepreneurs start out with something that really bothers them. That's what struck me about your column. You, you say it, was, it wasn't a rant, but I will tell you, I was a long-suffering Wizards fan for many years, and I gave up my season tickets because I just, I, I just couldn't stand the product anymore. Mm-hmm. You seem to have hung in with many people. You mentioned that your network, people are coming to you. What, what's different about this? I mean, teams teams move to, re, you know, they move from Cap Center to downtown. Teams, teams move around regions. I mean, there are various cities in the United States right now where sports teams are moving arenas. What, what is it about this particular situation that has caused people to be so emotional? I think there's two aspects to it. There's sort of the head and the heart of it. The head of it is I think that A lot of people around the country, but especially in this region, I think are wising up a bit to just how bad a deal publicly financed sports arenas can be. The idea that Ted Leonsis, who by all accounts is a billionaire, wants $600 million from D.C. or more than a billion dollars from Virginia to build a new home when the arena he's got is perfectly fine. It completely works. I'm sure that there's updates that they can do. But, you know, the, the idea that there's a, a billion dollars worth of tax money that needs to go into this, I think, really rubs people the wrong way. And the heart of it is that, like you said, the the team is bad. The team is very bad. And that means the people who are still going uh, should be are, getting paid, basically. <laughs> are very dedicated. Yes. And it feels like DC's team should play in DC 
Um, it's a great central location. It's accessible to every single metro line. You know, I have friends in Virginia who say, I don't want it closer. I like going into the city to see it. I have friends in Maryland who say, I'm not going to go because it's now, you know, doubling, tripling my my commute to games. It, it feels like they should be in the heart of D.C., and it does feel like a bit of a betrayal um, to having them moving out, even though it is really only a few miles, a few metro stops if you're on the, you know, the yellow line. Yeah, that is one of the things that's, that's I think, very interesting about this deal to me is you say, I'm a, Phil- well, I'm a Philadelphian, and mm-hmm. you can say, too bad, but I, I am. I grew up in Philly, and I grew up watching the Sixers and the Flyers and the Eagles, and all the stadiums are in a very remote location out in South Philly, and the Sixers are trying to move into Center City. It's actually a longer distance move than from uh, uh, moving across the river into, into Alexandria. There are emotions there. There's the issues around subsidies, and we're going to come back to that. But do you think that this regional thing, the fact that we are three states separated by rivers, do you think it makes it worse? Undoubtedly, it yeah. does. I was talking to Professor Nate Jensen at the University of Texas, um, who uh, I interviewed for this story, and he was comparing it a little bit. He was shocked. I mean, he was shocked at the idea that uh, that all these municipalities are competing for the right to pay for this building. And it's so much worse in the D.C. area because you can cross state lines. You mm. can keep the team in Washington, but you can go to Maryland and say – Here's what we want from you. And then you take that to D.C. and you say, well, Maryland's given us this. What are you going to give us? And you go to Virginia and you say, well, D.C. and Maryland said this. What do you give us? And you can just keep going back and forth. I think the Sixers kind of tried to do that with Camden mm. a while back in New Jersey. And I don't think it really um, – Nobody wants to go to Camden, unfortunately. Uh, yeah. But you're right. They did try to do it. And and they tried to do New Jersey. And I guess at the end of the day, you know, Brooklyn uh, used to be in New Jersey and the Nets moved across. It seems to be the way things go. It when you spoke with this uh, economist in, in Texas and he expressed some surprise, I must say I've been around regional economic development in various ways for many years now. Just about every time uh, a major employer comes to the region to try to locate a corporate headquarters, the jurisdictions compete. We mm-hmm. saw with HQ2, although at the end of the day it was seen as a victory for the region, there were proposals from each part of the, the region to put it here. We saw the same thing with everything. Do you think that there's something about this region that we just get in our own way and we're our own worst enemies by competing with each other? Oh, I think so. Um, I think so. When I used to work at Washington Monthly, there was a case that got batted around the the newsroom there um, for regional government for the idea of like, well, what if we didn't have a, you know, what if we didn't have a governor? What if it wasn't three different or, you know, two different states and one that should be a state? What if it was like, oh, the, the D.C. area had one sort of council, um, which maybe would avoid things like this. But one thing that Professor Jensen was telling me, because I was asking, like, well, why do states, cities, why do, why do they compete so much, especially for something where you start to see diminishing returns? You know, once you're put, oh, we'll put $100 million. Well, we'll put in half a billion. Well, we'll put in a full billion. At this point, the, like, how much money is the arena going to bring in? But once you're in that war... You know, it's it's like Ted Leonsis or whoever it is. It has everyone trapped at the auction and suddenly you don't want to lose mm-hmm. because it's now public that all these people are competing and you don't want to be the you want to you want to be the city that lost out on Amazon. You want to be the city that lost the Wizards or the city that could have had the Wizards and then didn't pony up that extra hundred million that what you know, 200 million. What could it you know, what does it matter? And, but then at the end of the day, you like look at your wallet and it's like, wait, we promised to pay what? Right. 
Now, I do want to get a little bit to uh, economic development because you had some interesting things to say in your column about some of the choices that are made. But I am I think I want to ask a question that I'm sure at least some listeners would want to ask you, which is, would you be this upset if it wasn't a billionaire? You know, if it had just been some guy or gal who just, you know, was just a normal person who was was doing this, would you be as upset? Like if it was sort of a like, like suppose I mean an like, average person. So you and I just we decided today that we we want to we want to move our sports team, and we're just a couple of working stiffs, and we're just going along, and we're not billionaires, and we go we play the states against each other, and we get somebody to give us a billion dollars to move the team. Would you be as angry? I think probably not. I don't know how we would own the team in the first place. Well, there. I get it. That's the great thing about my show yeah, is I can assume, <laughs> assume facts and not evidence. But you know, I. I'll just tell you that one of the things that strikes me uh, about this, and and I, like you, I'm on record. I wrote a column about this in the business room a couple weeks ago. I do think that in my heart, if somebody is really, really economically fortunate, particularly we're talking about something like a team where, you know, you and others go and watch the sport, there's an element of public trust to this. And, uh, and, I, and I suspect that a lot of the people that are really unhappy about this wouldn't be as unhappy if it was just a business. But because it's a sports team owned by somebody who is perceived as not needing the financial assistance as much as some others, it, it raises – it makes it much more politicized. You know? I think you're totally right. I think there's something almost inherently tragic about being a huge sports fan here because, you know, the teams are – they're owned by billionaires. It's becoming – even more, you know, they're not even millionaires anymore. You probably can't own an NBA team without being a billionaire now, you know, and then who knows in in 20 years, they might all be like sovereign oil funds or something like that. Like we're we're raising the floor of what it costs to buy a sports team. You have this, uh, these two things in your head where like the team means so much to me, the team means so much to the city. They've got the city's name on the front of their jersey. I root for them, but you know, it's also a business. Players get traded. Your favorite player gets cut because he was making too much money. Your the tickets go up in price. The owner doesn't really care about what you have to say because you're not, uh, you know, you're just a fan. You only pay twenty, thirty bucks a game to get in there, um, and you have to hold that in your head. And I think people in this region, especially, are very used to loving a team and hating the team's owner across <laughs> different sports. The Commanders have certainly helped build that model. Yeah. <laughs> But what makes this difficult is it makes it so much clearer. You know, you don't have to have that cognitive dissonance. The owner is there holding the team hostage, it feels like, saying, like, look, you need to pay me $600 million to renovate the arena or we're leaving. And it really it really lays bare that, oh, this is not our team as Wizards fans, as Capitals fans, as Mystics fans. Like, this is not our team. This is his team. And we like to operate under the illusion that, like, you know, he pays the checks and he gets handed the trophy if that ever happens. But, you know, it's still kind of ours. You know, it's our team to root for and, and associate with. That's very interesting, Matt. And when we come back, I want to talk some more about them. Here with Matt Conley, a journalist who's writing about uh, or just wrote about what's going on with the Serena being moved to Alexandria. What's working in Washington? We'll be right back.
you put us in touch with some of the best voices in the Washington, D.C. region, we've been hearing from you and speaking to the people you want to hear from. That's what What's Working in Washington is about. We talk to the power players about innovation in the federal government and how business in the region is keeping us competitive. But more and more, we talk about the hard questions and look for the real answers that will drive the region and our nation forward. If you know someone we should be talking to on our show, do let us know. We look to shine a spotlight on people who are really getting things done in the region. So please keep those ideas coming. And thanks to all of you who stay in touch with us. I'm here in the studio with Matt Conley. Matt is an independent journalist who recently wrote a piece in The Atlantic around the proposed move of the Wizards and Caps to Alexandria. And we've been having a very interesting conversation. Matt, I want to continue it. Right before the break, we were touching on something I think we really want to finish unpacking, which is sports teams are in business. They're run like businesses, but for the fans, they're not a business, are they? No, they're not. There's something more. And I think that's why... It's so easy to hold fans hostage in that way. Mm. Um, and that happens in big ways, like give us a billion dollars or we're moving the team. It also happens in small ways, as anyone who's you know bought beer or food at an arena can attest to. You mean you think the food in arena is overpriced? Just a little bit. Yeah, that's, a, that's another reason why I don't go. But anyway, in your piece, you touched some on this, and, I, and I'd like to talk more about it. You raise, a, I think, a very fair question, which is, do people who do these deals actually do a real but-for analysis on how they're spending the money? What did you learn? I took a real deep dive into this, and a lot of it actually didn't end up making it into the article um, in The Atlantic because uh, there's only limited space and only you know so many numbers you can force down people's throats in print. They definitely want you to think that they have a full analysis done. Um, any arena deal like this ends up being you get the – long packet, you get the slideshow, you get the pretty rendering of here's what the arena will look like, here's all the weird faceless blurry people walking around it, um, and here are the billions and billions of dollars it'll bring in economic revenue. Here are all the thousands of jobs it's going to create. And for the you know low price of $1.3 billion up front, you're going to make $10 billion later on and or, or more than that once, you know, all the other development that's definitely going to happen comes up. It's very hard to find out how real any of that is. Or rather, it's easy to find out that that's not real, but it's hard to find out what the real numbers would be. Um, and that's by design. Hmm. So one of the things that when I spoke with folks at Monumental Sports and Entertainment who own the Wizards, uh, they pointed me to... Uh, Nats Park. And they talked about how, well, if you look at, sure, stadiums were economic losers in the past, but we've fixed a lot of those issues. And if you look at the Nationals ballpark, you'll see that it, uh, when you account for revenue from the ballpark and 
Navy Yard, all the revenue that came up from the Navy Yard that came up around it, um, they've actually broken even, sent me to articles about this. And on its face, that looks true and it looks good. You know, the city puts some money into building the arena. Apartment buildings and restaurants go up because people want to live and go out near the arena. People going to the games get taxed. Those taxes go to the city. People moving there get taxed. Those taxes go to the city. People going out to eat get taxed, et cetera, et cetera. And eventually the city makes back the money that it put in plus more. But the issue is we don't look at where those people are coming from or what they would have done otherwise. Mm. Um, the problem with calculating economic impact, especially when it comes to arenas, is one of cannibalization. Let's say I have – here's how much money I have and here's how much I'd like to go out. I'm going to go out twice this week. I've got some spending money. You know, Maybe I got a bonus. Maybe I'm doing well. I want to go out. I might go to a baseball game, in which case I'll go out in Navy Yard. I'll eat dinner. I'll go to the game. I'll spend some money. All my money will get counted in that assessment of how much the ballpark brought in, how much the neighborhood brought in. If the ballpark wasn't there, would I have stayed home? Or would I have maybe gone out to 8th Street and I would have gone to see a show at, uh, you know, what was then Rock and Roll Hotel and I would have gone out to eat there and that money would have gone to D.C. It only counts as added money if we can be sure that the people who are moving to Navy Yard, who are going to Nats games, who are going out to those restaurants wouldn't have otherwise been living in other parts of the city, going out in other parts of the city, going to sporting events, concerts, movies, whatever it might be in other parts of the city. As a city economically, and this is hard because sports are so emotional, but if you're a complete cold, you know, comptroller math robot, it doesn't matter where the tax revenue comes in. There's no difference right. between the movies, the basketball games, the restaurants, the concerts. There's no difference between um, where people are going out as long as that tax money gets to, you know, my coffers. Um, Interesting. You know, the cannibalization um, argument, I think that that is persuasive to me. I do wonder, though. Uh, whether or not that creates an argument for why a jurisdiction should fight to keep a team from moving away, because then you would lose something. I mean, do you think the analysis is different? Would the analysis be different if if the Monumental had said, you know what, unless we get this new stadium, we're moving to um, Seattle, which doesn't have a team. Would, would that be more persuasive to you? I think it would be more persuasive. And it's even somewhat persuasive as it stands now, because D.C., and I think part of why it feels like uh, Ted Leonsis has kind of DC over a barrel here is that if the arena moves to Alexandria, there are probably DC residents who will go out in Alexandria and DC won't get that, won't get that tax revenue. Um, so there is the like what we talked about earlier about like how close these jurisdictions are about them competing against each other. There is a little bit of truth to that because, you know, while someone going out on H Street versus going out on Navy Yard are really the same to the city going out in Gallery Place versus going out in Crystal City are different. The question becomes, though, how much is it worth mm. uh, to save those people? And how much would the city get by taking, let's say, $500 million in arena money and instead putting it into anything else? Well, that's the point I was going to ask you. In your research for this, this article— where you spoke with different economic development experts around the country and academics, had 
you learned of any analysis that was done that compared the spend on the project in comparison to, say, providing housing subsidies or paying off student loans or providing K through uh, five daycare? I mean, I'm not aware of any study that ever does that. Did you find any? I didn't find any, no. Um, they're also, I think it's it's academic-wise, I think it's hard to, uh, you end up having to make a value judgment. And I think that might be an easy value judgment for us to say, you know, would you rather have a basketball team or would you rather have free daycare? As an economist, you kind of, you have to look at that and say, okay, well, we get free daycare. How do those people, those people age? Are they, are they higher earning? Do they pay more right. taxes? Like, does it actually, like... Figuring out what's worthwhile is very hard because once you start to get into other social services, you get into sort of people's values about the the morality of those services and what is good. Um, You're right, although I'll tell you uh, as an economist that you can measure the economic effect of things like childcare, and you can you can assign the economic value. And you're right. At the end of the day, we are making choices when we choose to finance an arena instead of, say – Worker housing. Mm -hmm. My question is, it sounds like you've answered, which is that when you went off and did the research, nobody does that analysis. It's sort of left to politics is what it sounds like. Economic development exists as a little hermetically sealed. Do you want an arena or not? Mm -hmm. Is that what you saw? I think what's tough about it, and I should say that I didn't, I'm sure there are people who work on these analyses because um, they are. What I learned was that economists who don't agree on anything generally agree that arenas don't work financially. Mm -hmm. um, so there are – I don't want to say that like no one has done it just because I didn't um, read any specifically. It's hard because A, these arenas, they have these – I don't want to say phony but phony promises about how much money is going to be brought in. Oh, you know, it makes money. Actually, the schools make money. The you know Our housing development ideas make money because this doesn't cost anything. It's free. It brings in more money um, and you don't really find out whether that's true. For 20 or 30 years, at which point – If then. Right, if then. If, and, and that's that, your point. And at that point, the owner already wants a new arena because these only last a decade or two now. You know, they, they're not – they don't make them like they used to apparently. Apparently not. Um, uh, apparently not. Now, so I'm sure, or at least I would hope, that somebody is going to listen to the show who who knows Tembleonsis or knows somebody who's an owner as a fan and as somebody who's looked at this and talked with a lot of fans – what would your advice be to Ted Leonsis if he was sitting here right now? Draft well. Draft well. <laughs> don't don't James Dolan my season tickets. Don't uh, mm -hmm. you know, don't take a video of my face and bar me from entering the arena or anything. Right, right. But I would maybe plead to put some of his own wealth into his own building and to think about think about the community that he comes from. Um, I know that it's it's very easy to sit and say, well, it's his money or it's in this case, it isn't his money. It's his team. He can do what he wants with it. If they're offering him a billion dollars, why wouldn't he take it? You know, why wouldn't any of us if, you know, Virginia says, here's a billion dollars, would I say, oh, no, I'm too morally upstanding for that. I think as a sports owner, you do have a responsibility to your community as a, you know, a business leader, as a part of the fabric here, um, the owner of lots of real estate. Um, the owner of lots of things that bring a lot of people joy and also pain, but in a meaningful way, hopefully. Maybe think about what your responsibility is and be a part of the solution to helping, you know, revitalize D.C. and to helping keep things that are important to us here in town. And if you have an issue with the way the neighborhood looks, if you have an issue with the way things have gone after COVID, then ask for that. 
then lobby lobby the mayor, lobby the council, say, hey, I'm going to revitalize the arena. Can you promise some money to revitalize the area around it? Can you put some money into the small businesses here? Can you put some money into um, getting people back into houses or, you know, getting people jobs and things like that? Um, really be a steward of the community that helped bring you to prominence. Well, Matt, I think that with that, you've really nailed it for all of us. You've provided the fans' viewpoint and an informed viewpoint, and I hope that the owners of the Monumental and the owners of the Commanders are paying attention that it ain't just business when it involves the fans. It's more than that. What's Wake in Washington? Matt Connolly, thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much. put us in touch with some of the best voices in the Washington, D.C. region. We've been hearing from you and speaking to the people you want to hear from. That's what What's Working in Washington is about. We talk to the power players about innovation in the federal government and how business in the region is keeping us competitive. But more and more, we talk about the hard questions and look for the real answers that will drive the region and our nation forward. If you know someone we should be talking to on our show, do let us know. We look to shine a spotlight on people who are really getting things done in the region. So please keep those ideas coming. And thanks to all of you who stay in touch with us. What's working in Washington? That's a question we often hear. The reality is, Washington works every day at looking at the issues that have to be addressed, solving problems when we can, but more than anything, the crossroads for where change will occur and needs to occur. This show, What's Working in Washington, brings voices into the studio so you can hear from them what they want to do and how they want to contribute to this great enterprise we call the United States of America. Washington is a team effort. Our executive producer and editor is Tracy Madigan. Our assistant producer is Anna DeGraff. The theme music you've been listening to is performed by the Sunbathers. And thanks to all of you for joining us on What's Working in Washington. You've been listening to What's Working in Washington on Federal News Network and streaming as a podcast.